Hi everyone, I trust that you are well and that you've had a good week. We're going to pause our series through the book of First Peter. We almost made it to the end of the book before Christmas, but seeing as we're just a few weeks away from Christmas, I thought it would be good for us to have an Advent theme and to spend the next three weeks looking at some important themes that the Bible gives us around the events of that first Christmas. As we begin this morning, I thought we could have a quick game of Trivial Pursuit. What I'm going to do is read the opening lines of several books, and you have to guess which book it is. You'll have to keep your own score and be honest, and maybe you can let me know how many you got right. Are you ready? Let's go. Number one. Here is Edward Bear, coming downstairs now, bump, 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 on the back of his head, behind Christopher Robin. That's A. A. Milne, Winnie the Pooh. Number two. Apart from life, a strong constitution and abiding connection to the Tembu Royal House, the only thing my father bestowed upon me at birth was a name, Rolly Chachla. That's Nelson Mandela's A Long Walk to Freedom. Number three. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. That's Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Number four. Well, Prince, so Genoa and Luca are now just family estates of the Bonapartes. That's Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. Not that I've read it. Number five. When Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 111st birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. That's J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Number six. Call me Ishmael. That's Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Number seven. These two very old people are the father and mother of Mr. Bucket. That's Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Number eight. Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits, and their names were Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and Peter. That's Beatrix Potter's Peter Rabbit. Number nine. Marley was dead, to begin with. That's Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. Number 10. If you want to find Cherry Tree Lane, all you have to do is ask the policeman at the crossroads. That's P.L. Travers, Mary Poppins. I wonder how many you got right. Today, I want to look at the opening words of the greatest story ever told, and if you have a Bible near you, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read the first 17 verses. Matthew begins his story like this. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadab, 
Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were fourteen generations in all from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. And this is God's word. This is quite a list of names to read and to speak out. I wonder how many of you pushed the forward wind button on your WhatsApp. This is Matthew's very first book. This is the greatest story in the world, the good news about God's Messiah. And yet, obviously, Matthew did not have a very good editor or publisher or something, because anyone could have told him that this is not a good way to start a book. It would seem that even it was a dark and stormy night would have been a better beginning. What is Matthew doing here? Well, perhaps it would be helpful to us if we thought back 2,000 years to the kind of culture that Matthew was writing into. It was a culture that didn't have television or radios or the internet. It was an oral culture. At the end of the day, after supper, as you were sat around the fire, you would tell stories. And those stories would be passed on from generation to generation. One of the favourite ways of telling stories would be to go all the way through your family tree and list all the names of all the people and tell about the things that those people did. To a certain extent, we still do that a bit today. I can tell you the story about how my dad, as a little boy, was thrown into a haystack and cut his leg on a piece of glass. He still has the scar, and I've passed on that story to my children. All the time my Uncle Ian fell out of a chestnut tree onto the pavement, and my grandfather walked past him in the hospital without recognising him because his face was so swollen. All the time my Uncle Ian dropped a stone slab on his head while repairing his house— all the time my Uncle Ian fell off his motorbike. My Uncle Ian is accident-prone. And I'm sure that you could tell me all sorts of stories too from your family. Sadly, we've lost some of that through all the entertainment we have. But in those days, that was the only entertainment they had, telling the family stories. And so the Jewish people loved genealogies. They could list all of their ancestors by name. And genealogies were important for another reason, too. In our individualistic society, we recommend ourselves to others by listing our degrees and work experience and accomplishments. But in a more communal, family-orientated society, 
Your genealogy was your resume, your CV. It said who you were. It said something about your family and your upbringing. Matthew begins his story about Jesus with this description of Jesus' family. And you can imagine his first readers rubbing their hands together and saying, Right, let's see the ancestors who produced the Messiah. Let's see who has the privilege of being a part of the Messiah's family. But I think that as those readers read Matthew's Gospel, they would have stopped rubbing their hands together and their smiles would have faded and they would have begun to frown because the kinds of names that are listed here would have sounded strange to them. Right at the very beginning they would have read, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, take a guess. Genealogies in ancient Israel. Do you think they listed the names of the men, the fathers, or the women? the mothers. That's right, your family tree listed the men. Here Matthew inserts the name of a woman where no woman had any right to be, and not just any woman, but a woman called Tamar. Who was Tamar? Can you remember? Well, if you go back and read Genesis chapter 38, there you will read about Tamar. I grew up in a Baptist church and every Sunday we went along to Sunday school and heard all sorts of stories from the Old Testament with those little flannel graph pictures and everything. I can assure you that not once did I hear the story of Tamar in Sunday school, even though her story is found right in the middle of the story of Joseph. We've just read about the three great patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob had twelve sons one of whom was Joseph, and another, Judah. Now, Judah went out and got himself a Canaanite wife, which already wasn't a good move, and he had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Judah found a Canaanite wife for his son Ur, and her name was Tamar. And the Bible tells us that Ur was wicked in God's sight, and so God put him to death. Now, in those days, if your brother died without having children, you would marry his widow so that his family name could continue. So, as a brother, you had to be very careful about who you let your brother marry. And so Onan, Ur's brother, marries Tamar. But he didn't want to give her any children either, and so God put him to death as well. Now, Judah has already lost two sons to this daughter-in-law, and he must have been getting a little bit anxious. And so he tells Tamar to live as a widow in her father's house until Shelah, his youngest son, is old enough to marry her. But then he accidentally on purpose forgets all about his promise. And so Tamar waits for a very long time. And one day Tamar hears that her father-in-law is passing nearby to her house, and so she dresses up as a woman of ill repute. She puts a veil over her face, and she stands on the street corner. Sure enough, Judah passes by, and he asks her the price for a one-night liaison. She tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her. This was an act of incest, an act condemned everywhere else in the Bible. And you can read the rest of the story for yourself in Genesis 38. But Tamar falls pregnant and gives birth to twins, 
Perez and Zerah, the same Perez and Judah that we find in verse 3. Not the greatest family story in the world, probably not one that you would talk about around the campfire, a part of the family history that you would hush up and never refer to. And you can imagine Mrs. Matthew leaning over Matthew's shoulder and looking at this and saying, for goodness sake, Matthew, if you're going to include the name of a woman, at least make it a nice woman like Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel. But Matthew says, no, I think I'll keep this one in. Well, let's read on. Verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Who was Rahab? Well, at least Rahab makes it into Sunday school stories. Well, her name does, but probably not her occupation. She didn't just dress up as a woman of ill repute. She was a woman of ill repute. Remember, Joshua and the people of Israel are wanting to destroy the city of Jericho, and they send two spies in to check out the land. And Rahab is the one who hides them. And because she believes that God is with the Israelites... She and her family are saved, even though the rest of the city is destroyed. It's quite amazing. Not only does she have a disreputable occupation, but she's part of a foreign nation. And yet she forms part of the genealogy of the Messiah. We read on in verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Well, at least we're dealing with a person who has got a slightly better reputation now. We all know Ruth. She is someone who lived during the time of the judges, and she's an example of someone who is faithful to her mother-in-law and faithful to God. After her husband dies, Ruth decides to stick with Naomi, her mother-in-law. She famously says to her, Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. But remember, though, that Ruth is a foreigner, a Moabitess. According to Genesis chapter 19, the Moabites were the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. They were also the nation that had led the Israelites into idolatry. The Israelites were told to stay far away from the Moabites. In fact, this is what the law said in Deuteronomy chapter 23. No Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. Ruth is a Moabitess. And yet Matthew says, I think I'll include her name here. That means that Jesus had Moabite blood in his veins. We read on in verse 5, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Well, about time. Here's something worth having in your resume. Royalty. And yet Matthew continues in verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Isn't it interesting how Matthew phrases this? He could simply have said, Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. But he doesn't do that. He deliberately draws attention to the only sordid part of David's life. He doesn't airbrush it. In fact, he highlights it. 
For those of you who are not familiar with the story, we find it in Second Samuel chapter 11. One evening, King David, who is a married man, sees a beautiful woman taking a bath on her rooftop, and David sends for her and sleeps with her. Her husband Uriah is away from home, fighting David's battles. And when Bathsheba tells David she's pregnant, David brings Uriah back from the front lines and tells him to go home and sleep with his wife. He wants it to look like the child is Uriah's. But Uriah refuses to go home and enjoy luxuries that the other fighting men can't have. And so he sleeps outside the palace. David sends Uriah then back to the battlefield with a letter in his hand to the commanding officer, telling the officer to engage the enemy in battle and then leave Uriah alone, undefended, to die, which he does. And after the funeral, David takes Uriah's wife for himself. In 1 Kings chapter 15, we read, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and did not fail to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Matthew doesn't focus on all that David did right and all the commands he obeyed. He focuses in on this one exception, the case of Uriah. And so those very first readers of Matthew's gospel, those Jewish men and women, would have been thinking, Matthew, what on earth are you doing? You're putting in all sorts of names here that you shouldn't be putting in. These are the kinds of names that should be hidden away somewhere in a bottom drawer. Woman. Pagans. Scandal. What are you doing? We don't have time to look at all the rest of the names this morning, but it would make a fascinating study. For instance, we have the name of Manasseh in verse 10. Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings that Israel had ever had. Listen to just some of the things that the book of Kings says about Manasseh. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. But we read how right at the end of his life, Manasseh turned back to God. The book of Chronicles tells us, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. One of the most dramatic conversion stories in the Bible. And there are other men, too, that we could look at. Even the so-called heroes of the faith, men like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They weren't perfect specimens. What do you think Matthew is trying to do in writing all of these names down for us? Well, I think there are a couple of things. The first word that comes to mind when I study this passage is the word condescension. 
That's an old English word that's lost its meaning slightly in our world. We use it to mean that someone is being arrogant or disdainful. But one of its older meanings has to do with stooping down to another person's level. Humility. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of watching a high-powered man interact with his grandchildren in his suit and tie, stooping down to their level to tie a shoelace or wipe a snotty nose. I'm amazed at God's great love for us, a love that would make him identify with us, a love that would let him have an ancestry like this. A love that took him way, way down until he became the size of an ovum, growing as a fetus, being born through the womb of a teenager onto the floor of a stable. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. All because of his love for you and for me, because he couldn't stand to leave us in our sin and shame that would lead us to eternal death, he stooped down, way down, to come and save us. I said at the beginning that genealogies acted like CVs in the ancient world. Sometimes in their CVs today, people try to enhance their achievements and downplay their failures. And the same was true in the ancient world when it came to genealogies. King Herod, who's mentioned later in Matthew's Gospel, had his family records destroyed because he didn't want people peering too closely into his past. There were some people in his genealogy, in his resume, that Herod didn't want anyone to know about. But Jesus is prepared to identify with us. The writer to the Hebrews puts it so beautifully in Hebrews chapter 2, where he says, Both the one who makes people holy, that is Jesus, and those who are made holy, that is us, are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. The second word that comes to mind when I read this passage is the word sovereignty. Here we can see how down through the ages God was using people and events so that eventually his son would be born into the world. And as we've seen recently in our series through First Peter, God is even in control of the evil and sinful events. He doesn't send evil, but he's completely in control of it. So much so that all of the sin and the failure and the evil that are recorded in this genealogy only serve to bring about God's plan of salvation for the world. And the same is true in our lives. God does work all things together for the good of those who love him. It sometimes takes time. Remember God's promise to Abraham, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. It took three times 14 generations for that to begin to take place in Jesus. Abraham didn't see that in his own day. 
And in our own lives, we might not see God's plan in our lifetime. But we do know that he is sovereignly in control of our lives. Then the third word that comes to mind when I read this passage is the word grace. One of my favourite verses in the Bible is Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, where Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And this passage illustrates that. There is nobody who is beyond the grace of God. There is nobody who God will turn around to and say, too late, you had your chance and you blew it. Perhaps this morning you're thinking, I don't really feel close to God. My life is a mess. I failed too badly. God can't forgive me. This passage denies that claim. In his book, Hidden Christmas, Timothy Keller writes this, Here then you have moral outsiders, adulterers, adulteresses, incestuous relationships, prostitutes. Indeed, we're reminded that even the prominent male ancestors, Judah and David, were moral failures. You also have cultural outsiders, racial outsiders, and gender outsiders. The law of Moses excluded these people from the presence of God, and yet they are all publicly acknowledged as the ancestors of Jesus. What does it mean? First, it shows us that people who are excluded by culture, excluded by respectable society, and even excluded by the law of God, can be brought into Jesus' family. It doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter whether you've killed people. If you repent and believe in him, the grace of Jesus Christ can cover your sin and unite you with him. In ancient times, there was a concept of ceremonial uncleanness. If you wanted to stay holy or respectable or good, you had to avoid contact with the unholy. The unholiness was considered to be contagious, as it were, and so you had to stay separate. But Jesus turns that around. His holiness and goodness cannot be contaminated by contact with us. Rather, his holiness infects us by our contact with him. Come to him, regardless of who you are and what you've done, no matter how morally stained you are, and he can make you as pure as snow. Throughout his life, Jesus was known as the friend of sinners of tax collectors and prostitutes. The people who said it said it derisively. To them it was an insult, but for Jesus it was a badge he wore willingly and proudly. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And if we feel that we've messed it up, that we have no place in God's special people, we need to read these verses again. These verses foreshadow the message of the angels to the shepherd a bit later in Matthew's Gospel. This is good news for all people. And of course, this has implications not just for how we see ourselves before God, but how we see other people before God too. We can't look down on others because of their pedigree, their rank, their gender, their race. Everyone is included in the new people of God. Everyone 
is important to him. Names are funny things, aren't they? To some people, I'm Pastor Parker. To my bank, I am Reverend A.M. Parker. To my family, I'm Andrew. To my kids, I'm Dad. To my wife, I'm, well, she calls me all kinds of names, which I won't share here. The first 17 verses of the Gospel of Matthew aren't just a long list of names. Each name represents a real-life person. And from these names, we learn, among other things, that God is a God who humbly comes to us to have a relationship with us. That his sovereign plan came to being the first time and will come to be again. And that we have a God of great grace who wants us to draw near to him. Amen.